How familiar are you with the story of the birth of Jesus? Not the one about Bethlehem and the stable, with Joseph, the shepherds and angels in attendance, but the one that has his mother, Mariam, giving birth to him under a palm tree and the baby speaking up miraculously to vouch for her chastity. If you're a Christian, this version of events probably sounds quite strange to you, and that's because it's the Islamic narrative of Jesus' birth. Christians tend to think of Jesus as entirely theirs, but the truth is he plays an important role for Muslims too, though they view his life and significance differently. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you're listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who want to explore questions of spirituality. To discover more about Jesus through Muslim eyes, I'm joined by Tim Winter, who's been called one of the world's most influential Muslims. Tim is a lecturer in Islamic studies at the University of Cambridge. Tim, welcome. Hello. We've called this edition of the programme Jesus the Muslim. Now, for anyone who knows how world religions unfolded chronologically, this may sound a bit strange, as Islam came hundreds of years after Christianity. But in what sense is that title true? Well, of course, the word Muslim simply means somebody who's doing Islam, which uh, ultimately in the Arabic language just means somebody who submits to God. So to call Jesus a Muslim is not, say, for an Arabic speaker uh, who is also a Christian particularly offensive. Every religious person who believes in God seeks to submit to God. And the character of Jesus, I guess in the Gospels as well as in the Quran, is certainly somebody who is completely in obedience and submissive to the will of his father. Jesus is seen as a prophet within Islam, yet he occupies quite a different position from the one he holds in Christianity. Can you briefly take us through those main differences? Well, Jesus is a prophet, but one of the great prophets. Muslims believe he's one of the four greatest prophets that have ever lived, and significant in that he receives a scripture, which most prophets don't. The scripture being identified by most Muslims with a kind of original scripture of which the current four Gospels, which are in Christian hands today, are a kind of somewhat inaccurate memory. So he brings a scripture, but he's not just a prophet because he also has this gigantically important eschatological role. That is to say, at the end of time, he actually appears again. So it's familiar, but obviously the Muslim appropriation of Jesus turns him into a, a subtly different figure. In the Christian faith, there's a very strong sense of the Trinitarian aspect of God, Jesus being God's Son, you know, God the Father, God the Spirit. That's uh, not something contained within the Islamic faith, is it? No, if you look at the actually quite extensive Quranic treatment of Jesus and also of his mother, you can see that it's a, a showcase for the Quranic style of subtly rejigging a narrative that on the surface seems very familiar, but actually is, is doing very different theological work. So Jesus certainly seen as an ascetical type of figure, somebody who renounces the world, who doesn't marry, who doesn't have children, who doesn't touch the money or the assets or the sort of financial charms of what was quite a mercantile civilization who drives the money changes out of the temple with a whip of cord, quite a militant zealot figure, in fact, but somebody who was ultimately human. So one of the culminating points in the Quranic narrative of Jesus is where his mother has given birth to him on her own in the desert, and she brings the newborn into the city of Jerusalem, and the first thing that Jesus says, and this is his first ever miracle, he actually preaches in his mother's arms, is that, I am God's slave. And that is, as it were, the Quran putting into the mouth of the infant Jesus its basic Christology. That is to say that he believed that he was the slave, the servant, the creature of his father, that he wasn't equal to his father, that he wasn't 
divine. So Muslims have always been deeply troubled by the subsequent evolutions in Christian theology, which spoke of a God who was one in three persons, holding that this was probably not the actual historical belief of Jesus himself and is a, essentially a Greek importation that has no place in a monotheistic, Semitic culture of revelation. In the Islamic faith, Jesus is not believed to have died on the cross and risen from the dead. No, the Quran has this, to many, frustratingly brief account of the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. You just get a single verse in the Quran, and it's not even anywhere in the Prophet's teachings, which are actually more extensive than the Quran, it's just this one nugget in the entire ocean of Muslim scriptural memory which says, presumably of the Jews, they did not kill him, they did not crucify him, but it was made to appear so unto them, full stop. And that, as you can imagine, has triggered a whole torrent of rival interpretations. What's clear is that the Jews are being exonerated. They didn't kill him. But could it mean that actually he was killed because the Romans killed him? Or does it mean that he wasn't killed at all and was somehow saved from the crucifixion and there are many subsequent Muslim narratives that hold almost in the kind of Da Vinci Code style that he was drugged on the cross but taken down when the Romans thought he was dead and then made good his escape in the dead of night from the cave. Those narratives are present in medieval Muslim speculation. Others would say that another individual, perhaps Judas Iscariot, was miraculously transfigured as a kind of divine punishment for his attempted treason and was grabbed by the Roman legionnaires and crucified in Jesus' stead while Jesus again made good his escape. So the Muslim imagination has been quite busy in determining what this verse could actually mean. But what I think is most important about that sequence is that the meaning of the crucifixion for most Christians is being denied. Here you have the Quran's rhetorical way, I think, of emphasizing that God doesn't need a cosmic sacrifice in order to bring humanity back to himself. This idea of a punitive, vicarious atonement, a blood sacrifice, seems to the Muslim imagination rather unworthy of a God of compassion, and that it's not necessary for God to bring about the torturing in this horrible way of his only son before he can accept human repentance. So what do Muslims believe happened to Jesus at the end of his life? Well, again, it's a big enigma, and there is a, an enormous effusion of legend and mythology. The understanding is, as the Quran says, God made him ascend to him. So there is an idea of an ascension, a bodily ascension, presumably, however difficult it might be for us with our modern astronomical knowledge to get our heads around exactly the mechanics of that. But the traditional Muslim belief, he ascended bodily into heaven and he is waiting for the end of time when he will return to earth and establish justice and compassion. But exactly what kind of sort of spiritual condition he's in at the moment ogles the imagination and most of our theologians have not wanted to go there. On the other hand, there are similarities. As we mentioned before, Muslims do have their own beautiful narrative of the birth of Jesus, although it's quite different from that of the Gospels. There are certain parallels with certain very early Christian texts that didn't make it into the final text of the New Testament. Again, you have to remember that all of this is kind of polemic. It's making a religious point. So there's this ambiguity. On the one hand, tremendous love and respect for an infallible prophet of God, born of a virgin. But on the other hand, we have the need to distance Islam from Christianity and to explain where the early Christians went wrong. There's no three wise men. There's no following a star. There's no baby in a manger. All of those traditional stories. 
Instead, what we get is the Virgin Mary is visited by a figure who is identified with the angel Gabriel, the angel of Revelation, and is given the news by the angel of a pure son. And when her term comes nigh, she goes off apparently into a place in the wilderness to the east of Jerusalem. What we get is this rather poignant image of probably teenage single mother in a scandalous situation, pregnant in a society that had no time for unmarried mothers, on her own, in the desert, and she's underneath a dead palm tree. She gives birth, and then a voice appears. We're not told whether it's God's voice or the angel's voice. It's just a voice telling her to shake the palm tree. Now, the sort of rhetorical force of that in the narrative is a woman's just given birth and the palm tree is dead anyway, but she's obedient. And so she takes the trunk of the palm tree and shakes it and fresh dates fall down on her. And then she's told to scuff the ground with her foot and a spring suddenly appears. And so she's nourished in the desert. And then she's given the presumably rather unwelcome news that she has to take a vow of silence. She can't tell anybody what's happened. And she has to go back into the city of Jerusalem to face the music with uh, apparently illegitimate baby in her arms. So she goes back to confront the scribes and the Pharisees with the baby in her arms. But what she does is for Asharat Ilay, the Quranic text says, so she points towards the child. The scribes and the Pharisees have said, how can you come up with this abomination? Your father was not a bad man and your mother was not a harlot. What is this? She can't reply. For Asharat Ilay, so she points, but maybe not to the child. And they're even more aghast. And they say, How can we speak to a babe in arms? And then, of course, at the moment of her apparent greatest humiliation and weakness, the baby speaks and starts to sermonize in beautiful classical Arabic and says, Inni Abdullah, I am God's slave. Al Kitab, he has given me the book. and has made me a prophet. Mubarakan, and has made me blessed wherever I may be. And you've got this beautiful Islamic sermon coming from this neonatal infant. And of course the scribes and the Pharisees are completely blown away. She is vindicated and the first point of the Quranic Christology, the Quran's theology of the nature of Jesus is made. It is an amazing story. Does Joseph feature at all? Not in the Quran. He's airbrushed out of it. He's briefly referred to in some early Muslim legendary accounts, but the focus is very much on Mary. In many ways, the nativity is more about her than it is about Jesus. In the Gospel accounts, Mary is a kind of prologue to the real business of God incarnate. For Muslims, Jesus is not God incarnate. He's another prophet, another perfected human being. So the emphasis shifts subtly back to the person of Mary. And it's interesting to observe a lot of modern Muslims who are interested in gender issues, role models, ideal types. A lot of feminist Muslims, for instance, are trying to reclaim their status in Islam by pointing to the figure of the Virgin Mary. Because after all, what is she? She's the one who the patriarchy rejects. She's sent out into the desert. She's the single mother. She's scandalous. She's apparently committed adultery. But she's the one who the angel speaks to, and she's the one who is vindicated over and against the adherence of a strict legalistic outward type of religion. Muslims do believe that Jesus will return to earth at the end of time. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's seen in Islam? 
The Quranic reference to this is clear, but it's rather succinct. But there are a number of hadiths in which the Prophet of Islam is saying, how will you be when Jesus, son of Mary, returns? And are you ready for it? Are you ready for the second coming? It's a little bit like some of those, are you ready for Jesus bumper stickers that you see in the Bible Belt in America? The same thing is, is there in Islam, the same kind of millennial expectation. Probably stressed a little bit less amongst Muslims than amongst Christians. The belief is that he reappears descending from heaven onto the white minaret of the great mosque in Damascus, and it's still called the Jesus Minaret to this day, and then will defeat the Antichrist, who is the kind of demonic inversion of the qualities of good, apparently in in the context of a great battle. It's the kind of Armageddon-type scenario, although that word is is not present. And then rules, some would say for seven years, some would say for 40 years, but it's a little bit hazy. It's not regarded as part of necessary Muslim belief to know exactly what you should put in your diary for when Jesus comes. It's kind of a hope. It's an eschatological hope. No doubt that hope has given a lot of ordinary believers tremendous solace in times of catastrophe, that things will be better, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. And then he dies and is buried beside the prophet in Medina in the grave that's already been made ready for him. And then there will be a sudden nosedive in human moral and spiritual capabilities so that people will just be living like animals, following their own pleasures and greed and extreme disparities of rich and poor, various forms of cosmological or environmental instability. And then the angel Seraphiel will blow his horn and that will be game over, as it were, and the day of judgment will begin. You touched earlier on the fact that Muslims would see a lot of the early Christian teachings as quite unreliable. Obviously, the four Gospels are really paramount to the Christian faith. How does that relationship work between the Quran and the four Gospels? It's ambiguous. On the one hand, Jesus clearly bears a scripture. He has a book with him, which is called Injil, which is obviously related to the Greek Evangelion, which means gospel. It's the same idea. But that's actually not what most Christians understand. They don't believe that Jesus brought a book. Church fathers such as St. John Chrysostom said, our Saviour did not bring a book, he was himself the revelation. So the Gospels are a commentary on the real Logos, which is Jesus himself, the real word. The Muslim understanding is that Jesus did bring a scripture or a book, which was subsequently in the confusion following the disappearance of Jesus on earth and the dispersal of the early church that was not conserved. So Muslims have a kind of ambiguous relationship to the existing Christian scriptures, pointing out that they were written by basically unknown hands some decades after the events which they purport to describe, that there are internal tensions, shall we say, between the four gospel narratives, and hence the four gospels that we have today are not regarded as scriptural or authoritative by Muslims. You didn't grow up in a Muslim family, but you embraced Islam as a young man. Tell me a bit about your journey of faith and how you came to see Jesus through Muslim eyes. I was at a tremendously posh school which was very achievement-oriented and musings about God or metaphysics of any kind were not exactly encouraged by the headmaster. However, we did have a very interesting chaplain who would regularly press us so that we in our vague teenage way would be forced to articulate what we did or did not believe. But he made it very clear that the doctrine of the Trinity, which we asked about because it was in the prayers we had to attend, probably this wasn't the belief of the early church. It was a valid evolution in the third and the fourth century based on certain clues present in the Gospels. But Jesus himself, his disciples and the first Christians didn't believe in the Trinity. 
and it took centuries before the final creedal formulations which Christians today abide by were made, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, Council of Constantinople. So that it struck me that really if you're going to follow a religious founder you ought to stick with what he himself believed rather than with what a bunch of Greek bishops 300 years later thought he would have preached if only he'd got around to it. So that triggered a journey of discovery. I was always very challenged by the person of Jesus. I didn't like what I took to be the blackmailing logic of, I have suffered so much for you, so you ought to accept me, which I thought was manipulative. But certainly the figure presented in the Synoptic Gospels, the Jesus of the parables, is an unbesmirchable, miraculous image, which I didn't want to let go of. This was the 70s. Many of my contemporaries were heading east to discover Buddhism and other exotic paths. I was not interested in that. I knew that the person of Jesus would always be very important to me. But I also knew that I wanted to know what he believed, what he took himself to be, and to find some form of worship and way of life that was similar to the way he himself lived. And Islam did sort of leap out of the pages of the comparative religion books very, very conspicuously, even though I'd had no exposure to it. I didn't meet a single Muslim before I decided I wanted to convert. It was a process of mental conviction. And Islam seemed to press all of the right buttons. Here you have the belief in the God of Abraham, which obviously was not a Trinitarian God, the God of Moses, the God of that beautiful narrative of the biblical story, and the God of Jesus, but without those metaphysical complications that then crept in that really veiled Jesus. The greatness of the Jesus of the Gospels is that you can relate to him as a vulnerable human being in Gethsemane. He's kind of frightened. He doesn't know what to do. He's asking the Father for help. He says, my Father is greater than I. He's growing in obedience. He has these moments when he's tempted. I thought that that could not be squared with the idea that he's also the omnipotent greater of heaven and earth. That didn't work for me. I like to see him as a purely human individual, and that's exactly what the Quran gives you. Did you feel like you had to unlearn quite a lot of your previous perceptions about Jesus from the you know, Western view that you grew up with? Well, the pretty stories are part of our upbringing and earliest memories, sort of once in Royal David City and so forth. That's there in the blood. But that's not the essence of the story or the theology. I had never bought into the idea of a cosmic sacrifice. I had always been brought up to believe in a loving God who could forgive people directly. And that strikes me as the beauty of, say, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal messes up and becomes a swineherd and destroys his inheritance, but then he comes back and the father welcomes him. And that's Jesus' own teaching of how human beings are justified and return to God. There's no sign of a cosmic sacrifice or part of God or God or the Son of God descending into our earthly sphere and suffering because we're too wicked to be accepted. Instead, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is telling us, God will embrace you directly once you open your heart and return to him. I'd always believed that. So what do you think Christians can learn from the Muslim perspective on Jesus they might miss within their own faith tradition? When I speak to Americans of an evangelical perspective, I remind them that Christians as well as Muslims believe very strongly in Jesus as being somebody who is not of this world, who turned his back on worldly pleasures. I think it would not have been at ease with the modern lifestyle which many modern evangelicals seem to have taken upon themselves which is one of making huge pots of money and building mega churches and driving smart cars and online ministries and that world of christian capitalism i think is a betrayal of what jesus actually taught and i think muslims and i'm sure many christians would regard that as something that has to be stopped in its tracks 
What do you think about the other way around? What can Muslims learn from the Christian perspective of Jesus, if anything? One of the things that I do every year is to take a group of trainee imams to the Vatican. And we stay in a monastery and we engage with the theologians and the monks and the nuns. And I think that what they find most moving is the idea of a collective lifestyle lived in a spirit of radical renunciation. A lot of Muslims nowadays tend to be a little bit comfortable in their lifestyles, particularly those who have migrated to the West, usually not for the propagation of the true faith, but in order to make a better income. And I think that the very impressive witness of Christians who have dedicated themselves to a monastic calling, following the footsteps of Jesus himself, who lived without property, is something that can help to soften a lot of Muslim hearts and something that I urge my Muslim seminarians to take very seriously. What would you say as a final thought, what Jesus means to you? Jesus means to me the ongoing recurrent love of God and his desire that all should be saved. He has not disclosed himself perfectly only once in history, but again and again and again. He disclosed himself perfectly with Moses, with Isaiah, with Abraham, with Joseph, with Jacob, with Jesus and with Muhammad. It's an unfolding story, but the salvation given at each point was true salvation. People were saved at each of those moments. So he is part of that great story. But it comes again at the end of time and gives me, and I'm sure millions of Christians as well as Muslims, tremendous hope that despite the rather dark times in which we're currently living, the clash of civilizations, environmental degradation, unnerving things being done by geneticists, that all will be well in the end and that Jesus will be the one who opens the gates to a better way of being human. Tim Winter, many thanks for joining us today. I'm Vicky Beeching, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people of all faiths and none who think there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.